0: Welcome to Stroke of Genius, a show exploring inventions, the inventors behind them, and the role that intellectual property plays in dreams becoming reality.
1: Intellectual property does play a considerable role. Having intellectual property is absolutely required if you actually want to have a medication that people are going to receive.
0: I'm your host, Lauren Hutchinson. I'm a historian of science and a technology reporter, and I'm fascinated by humankind's ability to innovate and advance the world we live in.
1: This is a medicine like no other medicine. It's like making a batch of drug for each individual patient, and that is unbelievably complicated.
0: In this episode, we'll explore CAR T-cell therapy, a groundbreaking approach to cancer treatment, which harnesses the power of the patient's own immune system to fight cancer. We'll speak with some of the people at the center of this innovation and follow the long and winding journey of an experimental idea on its way from the lab into the life of a patient. We start at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or CHOP for short, where we spoke with a world-renowned doctor and cancer researcher.
1: My name is uh, Stephen Grupp. I am at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I run the uh, cell therapy program and the bone marrow transplant uh, section. I do uh, immunotherapy research. Um, What I am is a pediatric oncologist, and oncology is basically the clinical field of taking care of patients with cancer. And so I take care of kids uh, who have cancer.
0: Dr. Grupp attended the Cincinnati College of Medicine and then did his pediatric training in Boston before moving to CHOP, where he has worked for the last 22 years. He described the unique spirit of the hospital,
1: culturally it's a very interesting place uh the you know i'm an oncologist and i'm a researcher and i'm somebody who's very interested in developing uh, new therapies and the thing about chop that i like from a cultural perspective is that they really want to know how your research is going to apply to making medical care better You do something cool in the lab, you discover something cool, and the first question folks around here ask is, okay, that's great, but what are you going to do with it? And that part, you know, which is what we in the business like to call translational medicine, getting stuff out of the lab, dragging it to where patients can actually benefit from it, that's a thing that's uh, very well uh, valued here at CHOP.
0: Translational medicine takes a collaborative approach to promote and expedite advancements in prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of disease. In other words, people from different fields working together to translate research into practice. This process is often initiated by identifying a
1: problem for me, it was really frustration with not being able to treat a certain number of the patients that uh, we see at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. The the realization that once you're past chemotherapy and if you can't get a bone marrow transplant or if a bone marrow transplant hasn't worked for you, which is actually what I do in the clinic, I'm a bone marrow transplant doctor. When those those options are exhausted, we got nothing for those kids or we had nothing for those kids. And so this was like, we got to think outside the box. We got to do something besides the standard three- treatments for cancer, which are surgery, um, chemotherapy, and radiation, because those things aren't working. And what can we do to really pull the immune system in? It was really, what can we do for the patients that drove this?
0: It was with these patients in mind, for whom all standard forms of cancer treatment had failed, that CAR T-cell therapy was developed. But before we can dive into the mechanics of that process, we must first understand the larger field of immunotherapy.
1: I mean, the way I look at uh, immunotherapy is that everybody has an immune system, and the purpose of that immune system is essentially to prevent a person from getting an infection. One of the most important parts of the immune system to prevent infections are a cell called T-cells. And T-cells are basically very good at protecting you against viruses.
0: T-cells are so good at protecting the body that they're sometimes called soldier cells for their unique ability to find and fight diseased cells. On their surface, T-cells have claw-like structures called protein receptors that are constantly scanning the body, looking for abnormal cells. For example, when you catch the flu, T-cells in your body look for cells infected with the influenza virus. When they detect one, they mount an attack, latching onto the infected cell. Dr. Grupp and his colleagues are building on a T-cell's natural combat skills. But unlike a virus, which a T-cell can usually detect, a cancer cell can be trickier to perceive.
1: T-cells generally don't see cancer cells and one of the reasons is that cancer cells came from your body and T-cells leave your body alone. Breaking that uh, barrier to T-cells recognizing cancer, that has a word that's called tolerance, breaking that tolerance of T-cells for cancer cells is what immunotherapy is. And then T-cells can really remove a huge amount of cancer once they are appropriately able to recognize it.
0: Training T-cells to recognize and fight cancer cells didn't happen overnight. There were many promising ideas that scaffolded this discovery.
1: So there were a number of innovations that led to this. And this is classic big science, where it's not just one person working in the lab uh, making something work, but there are contributions from dozens of scientists with dozens of different areas of expertise. So I've been at the University of Pennsylvania since 1996, and probably the most exciting moment from a scientific standpoint was the the day in uh, 2000 when I walked into Carl June's office. I mean, he is an extraordinary visionary scientist. Um, he's just an extraordinary person to work with and really the leader of the whole cell therapy efforts.
0: Dr. Grupp is not alone in calling Dr. Carl June extraordinary. Dr. June is considered a pioneer in the field of immunotherapy, and in 2018, Time magazine recognized him as one of its 100 most influential people. His career embodies the ideals of translational medicine, using the lessons learned in one field to solve a problem in another.
2: My experience has been one of these classic findings that discoveries oftentimes come from combining two different fields. My case was, you know, I was a cancer physician, but I was, you know, working on HIV and AIDS. And um, back then, there were no drugs, really, that worked for AIDS patients. And patients with HIV-AIDS in the early days the epidemic, they died really because their T-cells were killed.
0: Remember, T-cells are the body's soldiers defending against infection. Without them, we are left vulnerable. HIV patients needed replacement T-cells.
2: We developed a good and robust method to grow human T-cells from patients who had HIV and then give them back as a transfusion.
0: The technology that Dr. June developed in the early 1990s to grow T-cells is used today in cutting-edge cancer treatments. Here's Dr. Grupp.
1: You know, what you're doing is taking uh, T cells out of a patient, you're growing them outside the body, keeping them outside the body for a period of three weeks, and then you're putting them back in the patient. One of the big things that made this work was uh, Bruce Levine and Carl June over at the University of Pennsylvania really figuring out how to grow these cells in the best possible way that preserved their function and their ability to grow further in a patient um, while they were outside the body.
0: This was an astonishing accomplishment, but there was another essential lesson from Dr. Carl June's work in HIV-AIDS research that contributed to his work today.
2: We also studied the virus itself, which is called HIV-1. It's possible to engineer the HIV virus so that it doesn't kill T-cells, but actually becomes a tool. It becomes a tool to insert new genetic information into T-cells.
0: How could a devastatingly destructive virus become a powerful treatment tool?
2: Well... So viruses
1: have the, a lot of viruses, um, have as part of their life cycle, um, this ability to basically introduce a new gene into a cell and a virus that's actually growing inside a person, those new genes are intended to make new viruses. And so that's how viruses make copies of themselves. They don't have any of the things that you would need to actually create new proteins or create a new virus. It hijacks the cell's machinery to do all that work. And it does that hijacking genetically. So yeah, that's usually a harmful thing. But in this case, we take away all the things that the virus could use to make you get sick and leave only that property of genetically modifying cells. That is the essence of what viruses are, are, are capable of. They are basically little wrapped up pieces of DNA or a related molecule called RNA that are introduced into cells and that take over the cells to make even more copies of themselves. And we're able to take advantage of that ability of viruses to change the genetic code of cells in such a way that a brand new gene um, is put into the DNA of the T-cell, and that gene allows the T-cell to do something new that it could never do before, which is recognize and kill um, cancer cells. So really g- genetically modifying T-cells so that they gain this new function and that all the power of T-cells to kill cells that don't belong in your body is brought to bear against cancer.
0: Now that we understand the basics of T-cells and how scientists can use viruses to reprogram them, we can explore the result of that reprogramming. A chimeric cell, a T-cell with new properties that will now perceive and kill cells derived from your own body. This is a critical part of CAR T-cell therapy. By this point, you're familiar with what a T-cell is, but now, what is a CAR exactly?
2: So CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor, and that's because what we've made is a cell that doesn't exist in nature, but it's a chimera between a B cell, which is in our body, and a T cell, both two kinds of white blood cells that are uh, fundamental parts of the immune system. Now, a chimera, you know, comes from the Greek mythical creature derived from three animals.
0: In Greek mythology, the chimera was a hybrid creature with a lion's head, a goat's body, and a serpent's tail. It's an appropriate namesake, tipping its hat to the fusion of cells and a fusion of medical fields that contributed to the discovery. Dr. June's early career was marked by integrating findings from varied research practices. But after years of balancing his time in the laboratory and with patients, it was a personal tragedy that brought him to the lab full-time with a singular focus.
2: When my first wife in 1996 developed uh, ovarian cancer, I then uh, took six years off, uh, took care of her. She ended up passing away in 2001. During that time, I started to put much more effort in cancer therapy trials. And so I never went back to actually seeing patients. I've spent now 100% of my time in the laboratory. And so I work with the physicians who are actually seeing the patients. And my main you know, efforts are directed at trying to make the uh, you know, new cancer therapies.
0: This became the working relationship between the two men. Dr. June was in the lab with an ever-growing team of researchers and scientists developing the methods behind CAR T-cell therapy. And Dr. Grupp was working with pediatric patients at CHOP and contributing to the research efforts with mice. After several years of trial and error, they begun to see promising results.
1: The real sort of aha moment, I think, for a lot of us in the field, and certainly folks here at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the folks that I work with, um, we uh, saw by changing the nature of how we turn the T-cells on, how it's called activating T-cells, we saw the T-cells start to grow very, very significantly. And in animal models, we saw the ability to eliminate a significant amount of leukemia in, you know, in mice, with all, well, we're talking about mice here. Um, seeing that ability, you know, in mice that had uh, significant levels of leukemia go down to nothing and stay in remission. I mean, you never know that anything you see in a mouse experiment is for real or that it's going to mean anything to a person. But that really felt very different to us, that things had really changed. And so that was a hopeful moment. But the next amazing moment is really when we treated the first patients. In
2: 2010, when we treated humans that had uh, end-stage advanced leukemia, we saw striking results. In fact, they were so astonishing that, I mean, we doubted that they could have even happened.
0: Their first adult patient was so sick by the time the trial started, there was little chance of survival. So the positive results were remarkable. There were some serious initial side effects, but when things settled down and the team read the results of a biopsy, everyone was shocked.
2: It had worked much better than we thought. Uh, The result came back that there was no leukemia. I can remember, you know, because the clinician taking care of this patient was David Porter. I emailed him and said, I don't believe it. (laughs) At least I said, they probably just missed it. And I asked him to biopsy the other side, you know, because a bone marrow usually biopsy the your, your hip. And so they went from one side to the other. And a few days later, the second biopsy came back also with no leukemia.
0: The results of the initial CAR T-cell trials exceeded all expectations. After three successful trials with adults, it was time to seek approval to start a trial for pediatric patients, the demographic for whom the cell therapies were actually designed. There is extensive oversight to ensure safety in pediatric clinical trials, but you're still ultimately marching into the great unknown.
1: I would say there there are some aspects of this that are really nerve-wracking. There's no doubt about that. But the actual process of doing clinical trials and testing new treatments is the essence of pediatric oncology. So in the adult oncology world, only, you know, less than 5% of uh, patients go on clinical trials, which are intended to test new therapies. Um, in the pediatric world, it's way more than half. And in some diseases, it's up to 80%. And so we are all about pushing the field forward, uh, doing clinical trials and, um, trying to improve you know, over time, better and better uh, treatments uh, for kids. So that part, I think, is is really built into the culture. Most pediatric cancer patients are treated at large hospitals where there's the infrastructure to do these sorts of clinical trials. Now, that said, where are we when we're giving the first child in the history of the world uh, a treatment like this CAR T-cell, which no child had ever received? We opened a trial. Uh, this was what we call phase one, which is just we're figuring out how to give this, we're figuring out what the right dose is, we're figuring out what the, what the potential side effects might be. Uh, we have no, no particular knowledge of whether the cells will work or actually how toxic they could be, what side effects they could have. This was a brand new field of medicine, so that part, that's nerve-wracking.
0: If it was nerve-wracking for Dr. Grupp, you can imagine how anxious the parents must have felt. We spoke with Tom Whitehead, whose daughter Emily was the first child to ever receive CAR T-cell therapy. Emily's leukaemia had proven resistant to all standard forms of treatment. At seven years old, she had already relapsed twice despite intensive chemotherapy. Tom joined us by phone and shared what he remembered from that experience, as a parent running out of options for a sick child. It was
3: very scary that was up and coming, but they didn't feel Emily would survive long enough before they had approval to try it.
0: After the most recent round of chemotherapy failed, her doctors told Tom and his wife Carrie that it was time to look into hospice care. Even though the CAR T-cell trial had not yet been approved for pediatrics, Tom knew he had to do something.
3: That's my sign that we're transferring down to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia no matter what they have to offer. We're going to go down there because we knew that they had... Many more options and in in clinical trials down there.
0: When they needed it most, the Whiteheads finally received a bit of good news. The very day that Tom called the hospital to tell them they were transferring, they learned that the oncology team had just received approval for the paediatric clinical trial. And Emily was the perfect candidate to receive the experimental treatment.
3: You know, when we got to CHOP, Dr. Grupp and his team came in the next day and explained the trial to us, and he said, I'll be taking over Emily's treatment, and I'll be in charge, and here's here's what we're going to do. And they told Emily, we're going to take your um, T-cells out of your white blood cells, and we're going to send them off to boot camp at Dr. Levine's lab. We're going to train them to become an army that's going to recognize and attack your cancer cells when they go back in, and they'll wage a war against your cancer.
0: Emily stayed at CHOP for six weeks while the team collected and treated her T-cells at the lab. When they were ready, the T-cells were returned to Emily in graduated doses. First 10%, then 30%, and if everything looked relatively normal, they would administer the final dose.
3: So she got the rest of the dose, which was the final 60%, and then within 24 hours, things really spun out of control.
1: She had very significant side effects from her... CAR T cell therapy. And this side effect now has a name, which we didn't even have a name for back then because it was this is all brand new, a whole new field of medicine. The side effect is called cytokine release syndrome. And what we've learned in the interim, which we didn't know back then, is that This is something that happens when you have a lot of leukemia, literally pounds of leukemia in your body. And the T-cells do an amazing job of getting on top of all that cancer. But in the process of getting on top of the cancer, your immune system gets incredibly revved up. And that is quite dangerous to the patient. This cytokine release syndrome in patients with a lot of leukemia um, uh, can result in in requiring intensive unit care and that is actually what happened with Emily she had a great deal of leukemia in her body her leukemia was out of control we gave her the CAR T cells she developed a fever and then she went to the intensive care unit and got critically ill uh, to the point where we, we were very concerned that she probably wouldn't make it through the night you know the
3: doctor said we we have to save her life tonight we're gonna do everything we can your daughter's in trouble she was very scared it was pain she had been in throughout her treatment. You know, finally Emily was in so much pain that they said, we're going to induce a coma and we're going to put her on a ventilator to breathe for her.
0: Emily remained comatose for 14 days. While under, she was placed on an oscillating ventilator to help her breathe. Her dad said this process was hard to watch and the sound of the machine is overpowering. Emily was not improving and it looked like the CAR-T cell therapy had gone horribly wrong for the first pediatric patient. An attending physician took Tom aside for a bleak update.
3: They said, almost every child we put on a ventilator, we get off successfully. And unfortunately, your daughter's probably not going to be one of them. And I said, well, you keep trying to help her because I know she's going to beat this cancer. She's going to make it through this. And he pulled me into the hall and he looked at me like I was the most naive parent in the world. And he said, your daughter has less than a one in a thousand chance of surviving tonight. So you better call your family in. I said, "Okay, we'll call our family in, but... I will see you at rounds tomorrow because she'll still be here. And uh, we did. We called the family in and uh, played music in her ears all night because we didn't want her listening to that machine if that was the end. And uh, we talked to her all night and she fought through that and made it through that night.
0: Emily had made it through the night, but she was still in an induced coma with a high fever, experiencing side effects from the CAR T-cell treatment. During this time, her doctors were running tests, collecting data that is usually intended for following clinical studies. But in this case, we're expedited to offer any possible insight to help Emily.
1: During that whole period, we are all thinking about what to do for this young lady. And Carl is on uh, emails at two o'clock in the morning and around and around and around. What can we do? How can we fix this?
2: We found out that she had a very high level of a molecule called interleukin-6 or IL-6. It was not just modestly elevated, it was a thousand times above normal.
0: Dr. June shared the results with the rest of the team. They had identified the cause of the symptoms, but now they had to act quickly on the findings.
1: At that moment, coming to the realization that there actually is a drug that directly targets the protein that was so abnormal in Emily, and made the decision together, that we would um, give this treatment, which is actually not for cancer patients, it's for patients with uh, um, what's called rheumatoid arthritis, a disease I've never taken care of, but uh, actually Carl's daughter has that uh, disease.
2: You know, it turns out my daughter has had arthritis and tocilizumab had, three months before that, um, been approved by the FDA for treatment of pediatric arthritis. So I was probably the only oncologist who knew about this drug because it was never developed for a cancer therapy. And Dr. June had suggested trying an arthritis drug that had never been used on a cancer patient before. And we agreed. I said, we need something. I called Dr. Grupp and asked him to see if he could get that drug. He was able to get rapid permission from the institutional review board and from Emily's parents and gave it to her. And within hours, she, you know, she improved. It was a really, uh, astonishing what happened. And they gave her that medicine, and it
3: was what turned her around. Within 12 hours of that medicine, they were telling us, we've never seen a child this sick get better any faster. And we just kept fighting through hour to hour to see an improvement. And uh, after that 14-day coma, she woke up on her seventh birthday, on the actual day.
1: Literally overnight, Going from critically ill to uh, clinically stable, and uh, this completely resolved this toxicity, this cytokine release syndrome, and this was highly improvisational. This was, you know, a patient who was critically ill, clearly because of the therapy that we gave her, and um, we just—it was the first pa- pediatric patient we treated, and we had to do something about it. And this whole new field of medicine hangs on what happened that night.
2: What Steve told me with Dr. Grupp is that when he walked into the intensive care unit to uh, give this medicine to Emily, which was a simple uh, IV injection, the intensive care doctors called him a cowboy for doing something like this. And then, of course, it's turned out it works in all the patients, you know. And when our car became FDA approved in 2017, the FDA did a very unusual thing, which was they co-labeled, which means they approved two drugs at one time. And so they approved our CAR for the treatment of leukemia and tocilizumab for the treatment of the side effects. This
1: is something that was super innovative on the FDA's part. Usually a drug company has a drug and if they want a new indication, which is a new reason to use the drug, they have to do a clinical trial, of course, to show that this indication makes sense. In this situation, um, the uh, we had come to the Food and Drug Administration with clinical trials about CAR T-cell patients. We've said, well, you have to use this drug to safely give CAR T-cell patients. Um, the FDA wants to approve the CAR T-cell therapy, but now what do they do about this new drug? And so they actually, along with the CAR T-cell approval, they provided an approval for this new use of this drug, tocilizumab. And so that was highly innovative from an FDA standpoint, because they said, well, we can't release this new CAR T-cell therapy and say this is how you need to treat the patients and not have uh, an FDA-approved therapy for that. So this is the only FDA-approved therapy for cytokine release syndrome.
0: The use of tocilizumab to treat cytokine release syndrome resulting from cell therapy is a patent in process. It is one of the many, many patents that have resulted from Dr. Carl Dunes and Dr. Stephen Grubb's work. There's a copy of Dr. June's tocilizumab pattern in the show notes if you want to see the science behind the story. It's hard to imagine how differently things may have turned out had their team not worked so quickly to treat the side effects. Emily Whitehead has been cancer-free for six years now. She's 13 years old, in eighth grade and at the top of her class.
3: You know, besides being the international face of immunotherapy, cancer treatments, um, she's normal. She uh, plays with her friends Um, when she goes to school. They don't talk about what she went through. And what I tell people is when you see her playing with her friends now, if you did not know what she went through, you can't tell. And uh, that's what a cure looks like to parents.
0: Emily's parents transferred her to CHOP in 2011 after they were told they were out of options. For the Whiteheads, the choice to keep fighting and try an experimental treatment was a leap of faith that paid off.
3: Well, I think, you know, the best thing we ever did during Emily's treatment was put her care with them. And I've told them on many occasions that, you know, they didn't just save Emily, they saved our family.
0: The CAR T-cell treatment that Dr. June and Dr. Grupp developed with their teams in Philadelphia required years of research and experimentation. That journey from research to practice is not always successful. A lot of good ideas fail.
2: Science usually goes by... Almost kind of like baseball, I guess, where most times the hitter doesn't hit the ball. And, you know, every one out of five times, maybe, or one out of three times, they'll get a hit. But the other times, there are failure. And most experiments are like that in science. Um, and so are most clinical trials. In fact, in oncology, um, has a particularly high rate of failure. You know, they have had uh, new therapies that work splendidly in mice, but when tested in humans, just don't work for various reasons.
1: You can have a lot of great ideas in the lab, but they fail translation or uh, transfer into Um, actual clinical trials. And there are so many barriers to uh, going from something that looks really cool in the lab to um, something where you're trying it out in people. Uh, Paperwork is very difficult. Uh, Funding is very difficult because this isn't the kind of thing that the National Institutes of Health has tended in the past to to fund very much. It's a relatively expensive proposition to go from having something that might look very promising in, in the test tube or in mice to creating a product that you can actually put into a human being with all the rules that are around that. So it is a transfer process that is full of places where you can fail.
0: It's a risky bet. As Dr. Grupp just explained, the development process is expensive, complicated, and not guaranteed to work. This is where intellectual property comes in.
2: So intellectual property has been used as a way to incentivize companies to do risky new inventions, whether it could be a cell phone or, or a medical therapy. And... Unless they have some time of a monopoly on a product, then the companies won't do that. And innovation then has, and it's been shown, will lag behind. So companies need an incentive in order to develop something because of the risk.
0: Without intellectual property, there is nothing protecting these ideas from being copied by others who did not take all the risks involved in the development process. The relationship is fraught but ultimately patents contribute to the force that drives medical innovation.
1: If you want to create a new treatment, that new treatment is eventually going to be given to other patients through a drug company. And in order for a drug company to develop a new drug, there has to be ownership of that um, particular drug in a way that the drug company can actually profit from it. That is the only way the system works. So it's Having intellectual property is absolutely required if you actually want to have a medication that people are going to receive. I fully respect the fact that if, if the intellectual property is not maintained, that the eventual owner of the intellectual property, which will be a drug company if this is successful, won't be able to actually market a product, and that that uh, new new discovery will never be a medicine.
0: In 2012, the University of Pennsylvania announced an exclusive alliance with the pharmaceutical company Novartis. The relationship is intended to build on the promise of the initial work with CAR T-cells to bring a revolutionary personalized immunotherapy approach to patients with a wide variety of cancers.
2: So this investment is critical because there needs to be the infrastructure. Just like when the internet was first invented actually in the Department of Defense, They didn't have fiber optic lines out, and you could not distribute and have an internet at every house. And in this case, what needs to happen for cell therapies is industry needs to make the infrastructure, which really is the cell manufacturing plants where the CAR T-cells are grown from the patients.
1: This is a medicine like no other medicine. So what's happening is you have to actually collect... Uh, these cells from each individual patient you have to send these cells to a factory uh, either the one at the University of Pennsylvania um, or now at uh, Novartis which is the drug company that licensed this therapy and they have to make a product for this patient and they have to send it back it's 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 like making a batch of drug for each individual patient and that is really complicated from a regulatory point of view from an FDA point of view and from a manufacturing point of view it's unbelievably complicated.
0: Dr. June and Dr. Grupp never anticipated that there would be an entire cell therapy industry like we see today. When they first started developing these treatments, they were on the fringe.
1: It is in my opinion, nearly miraculous that this stuff is FDA approved. And um, if you had asked me five years ago, you know, a year after I treated Emily and after I treated the first dozen or so patients, if this was ever going to be something that actually could be given as a drug by a drug company, I would have said, that seems really unlikely to me. I don't imagine how this is going to work.
0: The resulting FDA-approved drug released by Novartis is the first medicine of its kind. Not only unique because every single dose is individualised, but the fact that it's a one-time treatment. Patients only need one round because the drug continues to evolve after it's been administered.
2: CAR T-cells are really a completely new paradigm in medicine because when we give them to patients, the cells actually proliferate and accumulate. You know, the first patients that we treated in 2010 still have CAR T-cells in them uh, now, eight years later. So that's why we call them a living drug. That's a very different approach than standard medicines.
0: The concept of a living drug is elegant and profound, and the advancements made thus far in CAR T-cell therapy are staggering. But both Dr. June and Dr. Grupp see themselves at the very beginning of a moment of great innovation. There are still many important and exciting questions that remain unanswered.
1: So my attitude about the questions remaining in CAR T-cells is everything. So what we've shown now is that this stuff works that you can actually do this at scale, that you can actually get to an FDA-approved medication. And those are all fascinating things. But the reality is this just works for blood cancer right now. It doesn't work for solid tumors. It doesn't work for common adult cancers like lung cancer or breast cancer or pancreas cancer. Um, So there is so much more room for improvement for new applications. This is barely scratching the surface of a new field of medicine. So even though this has been tremendous exciting over the past uh, six years since we treated the first pediatric patient. Um, the, the excitement is really what I think the next five to ten years are going to be unbelievable. There's a, a, an amazing amount of innovation. There's an amazing amount of investment. Uh, drug companies are paying attention to this. Uh, there are startup companies all around new ideas in CAR T-cell therapy. I don't think we have the vaguest idea of how exciting this is going to be in another ten years.
0: Thank you to our guests, Dr. Stephen Grubb, Dr. Carl June, and Tom Whitehead. You can learn about the Emily Whitehead Foundation, whose mission is to raise awareness and funding for innovative childhood cancer treatments by clicking the link in the show notes or visiting emilywhiteheadfoundation.org. I'm Lauren Hutchinson, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Stroke of Genius. This podcast is produced by Atwill Media on behalf of Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, Please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.